0: Hi everyone kevin here again with the messy city podcast pleasure to be talking with you all and uh, i'm going to try enough or another effort here at uh, covering a couple of topics just uh, on my own and uh and bringing you up to date on, on some things that are happening and, I, and that i'm observing the the main thing uh, i wanted to get to today the primary topic was uh, an article that i came across uh, this last week that was that was really interesting and so I'm going to spend some time talking about that and then uh, follow it up with a, uh, a second uh, um, observation uh, about uh, life currently uh, that I think a lot of us are experiencing uh, related to just kind of disruptions and changes going on, challenges uh, in regards to uh, finding people, staffing, getting things done in general. So let me start here with uh, Act One. So one of the uh, bloggers that I've been reading for a long time uh, is a a guy that I'm sure many of you have heard of called Mr. Money Mustache. Um, His actual name is Pete. He lives in Longmont, Colorado. He's been very active for years and really, uh, in many ways, probably formative for what we would describe as the financial independence retire early community. So some people might call that uh, just financial independence or FI for short, some people love to use the FIRE acronym, the uh, the full acronym, and uh, it's something that uh, I and, and my wife uh, have been really interested in for, for many years, become kind of devotees and followers of a lot of people in this world. Uh, I think it probably grows out of just a general uh, interest on our part on being financially uh, – I don't want to – I don't know that I would call us financially frugal, but how about financially uh prudent and uh and uh, an interest in trying to create as, mo- as much uh, independence uh, in our own lives as we possibly can and uh, i think it's it's obviously something that has caught on like wildfire and uh, there are just numerous uh, bloggers and podcasters uh, in the the fire world some people who do really really exceptional jobs there's uh, there's another podcast called choose fi which we followed for for many years and uh, just really great people doing interesting work to try to spread the message about uh, the values of creating finan- space in your own life uh, with financial independence. And uh, the long and short of it is, is it's basically like living below your means. So uh, I think at this point, it's kind of hard to uh, describe uh, much of what uh, my wife and I do is really terribly frugal. We, there's plenty of the the luxuries in life that we enjoy and we probably spend too much money on. Uh, But I also think on, on, in many ways, the, our approach has been, let's make the big choices. Uh, Let's let's be smart about the big choices. And then the smaller things we have a lot more flexibility with uh, in our lives and doing so just creates uh, the opportunity for us to have a lot of flexibility in how we live our lives, the choices we make related to work, uh, the things that we might choose to do or not to do, and just a general uh, lowering of the stress related to uh, all financial matters. Um, so Mr. Money Mustache is really one of the rock stars in this world, um, perhaps the uh, most famous uh, blogger in this world. He's been writing for over a decade, writes in a very uh, provocative manner that, that I enjoy uh, and I think obviously many other people enjoy because I think he has literally millions of followers, uh, at this point that, that have read his material and, um, and followed him in a variety of ways. One of the funny things is how his, his own interests <clears throat> in frugal living, uh, have collided with, uh, my interests and the interests of probably people listening to this podcast, which are, uh, related to sort of, urban design, uh, walkability, walkable communities. And he has a new post that he came out with this last weekend. Uh, he actually doesn't write as much now as he used to. He used to be a regular uh, blogger where he probably would post it, you know, once a week with something uh, really fascinating. Uh, and he, he's been the first to describe that, you know, he's well into his early retirement years right now and just enjoying himself, spending a lot of time doing the things that he wants to do. And he's just writing a whole lot less, but, Every so often, he does come out with a piece, and uh, I do always find them interesting. A lot of it, it relates to tips that people can uh, adopt in their own lives to be more uh, frugal financially. He's very blunt uh, about the way he does things and the, way that, the ways that uh, all of us tend to um, make assumptions about lifestyle that are, that are very inflated and, and on their face kind of ridiculous and uh he he just has a great way to of talking about issues that um that a lot of us tend to avoid which is really how can we be more responsible in our own lives uh with money and so and 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 not just really making that about money but it's it's really i think he would describe what he does as as a lifestyle blog Uh, and it's 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 a human improvement uh approach which is if you can find a way to be smarter with money you're, you're just going to have a better life for yourself. You're going to find uh, less stress, more freedom, overall, more enjoyment out of life. And uh, and and the understanding that uh, money and making a lot of money is not the be all uh, end all. It's really about creating uh, freedom in your own life to to choose the things that you want to do and the way you want to do them and and whatever that might be. We all have very different interests. Some of us really want to travel and see the world. Other people just really maybe have a uh, a desire to dive deep into something in their own community, a hobby, an interest, whatever it might be. But creating uh, a lifestyle that allows yourself to live uh, under your means really enables uh, the opportunity for you to do those things that you really most enjoy. So that that's kind of a big overview for anybody not familiar with Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, I'd certainly encourage you to go check it out and uh, and even look at some of his posts, some of the original ones from over a decade ago to get a sense of why he became so popular. But I really want to talk today about this most recent post, which is titled Less Cars, More Money, My Visit to the City of the Future. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this post, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, I think anybody in uh, the world of development, urban design, planning would have a lot of thoughts about it. Uh, and probably a very positive reaction uh, generally. So um, he he uses this post as a way to tie together his interests in frugal living with lifestyle related to walking and biking in particular. Uh, and he focuses it primarily around uh, a project that we just talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, when I had the, uh, Dan Parolik on here from Opticos Design uh, my friend, uh, the architect and urban designer who uh, runs that firm and is just, you know, a really fantastic designer and thinker and just overall really interesting person. Uh, and if you haven't heard that one, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, that episode because we talked about Cul de Sac Tempe uh, and, and a number of other projects that he's working on that have similar approaches. Um, but Pete, uh, in this blog post, uh really focuses on the nature of cul sac Tempe, this unique new development uh that is completely car free uh and that is the uh it, what what to many people probably would look like a, a very large apartment style community, which is really kind of what it is. It's a big rental community uh with upwards of a thousand people that may live there eventually. Uh, and has a variety of uh, commercial spaces, stores, uh, apartment community event amenities like gyms and other things that you would expect to see that are mixed in with it. And uh, Dan, Dan's firm, Opticos, uh, did the master planning design and led the architecture uh, on a lot of that work. So uh, obviously he has, a, he has a very interesting perspective on it. But, but this perspective from, from somebody who's not really in the world of uh, urban design and development is one that I found particularly interesting. And I admit I, as uh, sort of a tangent here, I gravitate towards uh, the opinions of people who are really not from my world uh, that just to to understand uh, a broader perspective on how people think about cities and life in cities and, and lifestyle choices. I, I find that, frankly, much more interesting than a lot of the uh, professional pieces that come out uh, from within our world. Uh, And I I think it's instructive for any of us who are designers, uh, developers, planners, et cetera, to seek out those voices that are people who are not the professionals within our world to really give us feedback. And and that's how you really understand, uh, do the things that we talk about resonate? Do they make sense uh, to a broader population? Or are we just kind of talking to ourselves uh, in our own language? Uh, which is interesting, but not terribly helpful if you're looking for uh, broader adoption of a lot of these ideas. So in this blog post, uh, he raves about cul-de-sac Tempe uh, and talks a lot about the, uh, the, excuse me, the incredible benefits uh, from a lifestyle standpoint and from a uh, financial standpoint of living uh, in a community uh, where you really don't need a car. Uh, I've written about this a little bit before in the past, really combines uh, two areas that that I have focused on in my own life that uh, I have seen really pay off uh, very well just from an enjoyability standpoint, but also financial, which is uh, I, I talked about how you can combine house hacking, uh, which is the, the notion that you can, uh, instead of just purchasing a single family house, as most people do, and uh, considering that like a piggy bank, Uh, for your future that uh, is a forced savings account that will create wealth for you over time and 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 hopefully that will in many cases it will if you're smart about it but looking uh, instead to leverage that mortgage that you might have as a way to create some other income uh, on that property so that might be like a carriage house that you or a granny flat that you might have uh, on the property maybe it's a a room in the basement uh, or the attic that you rent out Maybe it's a duplex, a triplex, uh, a fourplex, something like that, where you can buy in it, live in it, and rent out other spaces. But using that that leverage, you are going to to undertake by by going through the process of getting a mortgage, instead of that having just be an expense uh, on your monthly uh, uh, on your monthly sheet of, of things that you have to pay for. Uh, but also looking for that maybe as an income opportunity uh, and a way to even build more equity and wealth over time so there 's been a lot written about house hacking i've i've i 've done my fair share of it there there are books about it now uh there 's a Facebook group that I moderate uh, that uh, i 'd encourage anybody to join with a lot of great thoughts and advice uh, so that 's one element uh, of um, financial independence that i 've really enjoyed and then the second thing is really how by living. Uh, more of what what I would call a car light lifestyle and the implications that that, that uh, has for your finances. Cars, uh, I, again, I don't want to, to make this come off as like an anti-car thing. I think a lot of that language that we use uh, is really not helpful uh, at all in our uh, conversations about how to talk with uh, people that are not in the urban planning and development world when when we talk about uh, car centric communities or something like that, I just I think our language is often really, really bad. Uh, and um, it it makes us sound like we're in an ivory tower looking down on on people and things that they enjoy. Uh, Americans uh, have spoken with their feet and obviously enjoy having cars. They enjoy having houses. And we should be careful to, to not come off as the the snobbish people who are attacking those fundamental things that people like and enjoy. Uh, and so I'm not anti-car in that respect. I have uh, owned a car uh, since I was 16 years old in, in different ways. So, uh, and I think, you know, a lot of cars are really fun and exciting. And uh, I think personally, there's probably nothing I've enjoyed more in my life than getting in the car and having a long road trip. Uh, and seeing someplace new and, and experiencing, you know, a different place. And so I think all those things are wonderful. And I, I think the difference here is the way that it's better for us to communicate these ideas is to say, having a car is great. Having that, that flexibility and freedom that you can have. What's really great though, is not needing that car for every element of your daily life. And that's really where we've gone wrong in uh, American uh, city planning and governance over the last 100 years is that we have created uh, a world uh, very artificially, by the way, uh, very much from the top down, uh, you know, very well-funded, executed programs over many, many decades that have essentially forced people to own cars in order to live a middle-class life and access every need or or, or want uh, in your life so uh, we we tend to focus that on the commute to work uh, again one of the frustrations that I have a lot of times when we talk about statistics and driving patterns transportation patterns etc it, it's almost um, we we have this uh, statistic that was created along with the new paradigm uh, 70 or 80 years ago that was really about measuring commute um, commute share, commute to work and commute percentages and all those sorts of thing. But, uh, the commute to work is really just two trips per day. It's a trip to work and it's a trip back. And, uh, in, in, the larger scheme of things, that's almost irrelevant. We tend to make about 10 to 12 trips out of the house per day on average across all household types. And if two of those include a trip to work and back, and that's what you're doing by car, um, that's one thing. But if every other trip that you have to have, if going to the grocery store, if going uh, out for entertainment, if going to exercise, going to a park, uh, if, if all of those things require a car trip, that's a whole different matter. Uh, and that's, that's something the new urbanists have talked about for a long time uh, and argued that you know, if, we, you know, if we can just create communities where you can walk uh, or ride a bike to more things so that you're living uh, car light. That uh, that is uh, that is in and of itself a worthy goal um, because in we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and we don't have perfect cities and regions where it's very easy to construct a lifestyle where you don't need a car. Uh, it's just very unrealistic for the vast majority of Americans to say that they're going to be able to get rid of their cars uh, today or anytime soon. So uh, I think it's not helpful, a lot of our language in, our, in the field... Uh, at times, you know that is very just kind of uh, derogatory uh, towards cars uh, or or trucks or anything else. We've just got to um, we need to do a better job of connecting with with real people uh, and their needs uh, and their wants, not just their needs but the things that they desire. So um, that was a bit of a tangent, but uh, the the thing that I wanted to get back to is if you can create a lifestyle for yourself, that is in fact, car light, where you don't need to drive as much. Um, Maybe if you're a household of two or three people and you can live with one car instead of two or one or, or one car for every adult. Uh, If you, uh, if you're just a couple and the two of you can share a car, all of a sudden you're saving yourself uh, anywhere from probably five to 10 or $12,000 per year on uh just your bottom line expenses because cars have their benefits but they are also expensive uh, and they can be very expensive uh, if you drive them uh, you know 12 15 20 thousand miles a year uh, we tend to focus on the the cost of gas uh, but but in reality the the cost of gasoline is is more of a marginal cost uh, when it comes to the overall costs of owning a car uh, so there's the there's the vehicle itself, the the car payment that you might have, uh, or or just the cash payment that you might have to to buy it. When cars themselves are expensive, there's you know insurance, there's maintenance, registration, titling. There's a lot of expenses that come with owning a vehicle, and uh, we all have to decide you know if the juice is worth the squeeze for for uh, car ownership and what level of car ownership. But it's not cheap, and so again, if you can figure out a lifestyle where you have sort of a house hack opportunity and if you uh, can own fewer vehicles than the average you can find yourself creating uh, a real uh, a real positive uh, cash flow for yourself and building a lot of personal uh, wealth and equity uh, and it doesn't take very long for that to add up it's really pretty remarkable uh, it 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 might be a couple of years before you start to really see the results. but if you if you pursue that with any discipline at all, uh, over the course of ten or twenty years, you're going to see a remarkable difference uh, in your own bottom line and the flexibility that that get, just gives you uh, in your lifestyle to do it. So uh, I've encouraged people to do that for for a long time to pursue those routes uh, and and just enjoy those benefits. I've done it myself and and it's been remarkable how uh, it's helped uh, in in my life and then uh, our family's life. Uh, we still struggle with these these things like in, like any family does. And now that we've got two smaller kids, we're finding it a lot harder to live that uh, that lifestyle that we would like to live. We spend a ton of time, you know, throwing kids in the car and driving them around to different uh, events and activities, and. Part of that is just inescapable. Uh, we want to give them opportunities and take them to do things and enjoy things as a family. Uh, so you know we live in the here and now. no matter what we what we may want to do or what we may like to do, we we live in the reality that we uh, that we inhabit. so uh, it's uh, it's a challenge when you have a family for sure uh, to be able to do these things in most American cities the way they're set up today. but we still, we're still able to do a number of things, um, you know, with, with a car light, uh, approach that has worked pretty well for us. So, um, it, it's, it's, it can be a struggle depending on what your particular circumstances are, but I still encourage everybody to think about it, to pursue it as much as you can, because the benefits are incredible. So Mr. Money Mustache talks about these and he talks about what those benefits are to the individual, but also he extrapolates and talks about what they are for larger, uh, communities and for American society as a whole. And, you know, if we could have much less car ownership, just the incredible wealth that we would generate uh, in our country, which is all very true. And it's not just the cars, it's all the infrastructure that goes to support the cars, uh, the space that they take up, the land that it takes up, the parking garages and and the highways and the roads and everything else. So uh, all of that, I think, is really good and interesting to uh, to talk about and how he gets into that. And then he talks a fair amount about uh, cul-de-sac, uh, Tempe, and just the notion of car-free places. So, this is where I wanted to bring it back a little bit and, this, and talk about the notion of, of car-free uh, environments. Uh, and I, I would start by saying I, I think that uh, everything that he writes and talks about here is something that really resonates with me, and I think it's not gonna resonate with everybody. It's certainly gonna resonate with a certain percentage of people. And if you ever have had the chance to visit or live in a place where uh, they are, it's really a pedestrian oriented place and there really aren't vehicles uh, in, in the public spaces, um, you can really find out pretty quickly how enjoyable that is, just how different it is from our daily experience. You know, it's a small thing, but one of, one of the things that I have found that is incredible when you're in a place like that is just the difference in noise. We, you know, there is so much background noise caused by vehicles that uh, we, we almost tend to kind of forget about it and tune it out. When you're in a, a, a place, whether it's just a, a block or two uh, or a larger place where that is really pedestrian only, it's incredible how quiet uh, it can be. And just what a different sensation that has uh, in your own body. You almost feel yourself just kind of uh, relaxing, like your blood pressure drops just a little bit. If you have little kids uh, in particular that you're trying to chase around and, and keep an eye on, uh, it, it's also something that makes a big difference. And just, you know, being in a place where you know that, <clears throat> that they can run around and you're not having to be on your toes and vigilant every second about are they going to run out into the street and uh, is there a car there that could hit them uh, that that's a major stress point uh, for parents and and so uh, it, it's something that I'm well aware of. It's something that I think if if you're a parent, you're well aware of. but if you've been in a place and you've had that experience, it's really pretty incredible uh, just the difference. and so I think you know I, I, we've had these arguments within the new urbanism movement for going on you know 30 years or more now which is really about uh, pedestrian uh, free places uh, car free places uh, excuse me and um, and balancing that with the reality of how a lot of american cities are structured and i think it's absolutely true that these pedestrian only spaces are the apex of the human experience if you're really going to focus on what is great for human beings there is no better uh a space to be in that is um in a community than a place where you just walk around and you don't have to worry uh, or deal with vehicles very much it's just far superior to any other kind of environment even even a good old fashioned american main street which can be wonderful uh, uh you know the uh classic american uh town square uh, communities which are are wonderful but still have cars around the square they're you know the the pedestrian only places are are the, the top of the heap. They're the top of the pyramid in terms of places that are truly enjoyable. And I think cul-de-sac Tempe is, looks like it's going to deliver on that experience. It'll be something that we can we can all learn from. People are probably going to visit it from all over the country, maybe even all over the world. They're going to try to figure out how uh, how this was pulled off uh, in uh, the Phoenix metro area of all places, which is uh, it, which is really a very car Uh, car dominated uh, city. Uh, Like many, like many newer cities are cities that have really grown over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, So I say all that to say that I love, uh, I love the car-free places personally. I really enjoy them. I think it's great for us to think about how we can do a lot more of that. I think that is the kind of experience that will bring more people to urban communities and really get them to uh, find it to be find them to be successful. One of the places, you know, this uh, this may seem like a strange comment, uh, but one of the places that uh, I plan to write about at some point that uh, I visited uh, again, not for the first time, probably the third time or so last fall, was uh, was Disney Springs uh, in Orlando, Florida. So Disney Springs is is, is really just you know a, a shopping mall. Absolutely, you know, if you were to say this is just a current version of a shopping mall, you'd be you'd be right. It's uh, it, it's it's a an outdoor mall created by Disney Corporation um, that has um, uh, parking all along the perimeter and service and delivery access very well concealed. So uh, the the spaces itself though are as you walk around them really are incredibly enjoyable and they're far superior to you know most any other mall type experience that I've ever been to. And as a result, what you go and you see there is you just see a really incredibly successful environment. People love it. It's exciting. It's, it's well done. It's well programmed. Uh, and it has, you know, the kind of high quality amenities that somebody walking around would expect to enjoy. So that's, it's a far cry from, you know, the typical, you know, European, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, international, uh, city or small town, uh, that's, that's a very different experience. But for a, an American environment, uh, and, uh, and a lot of Americans, what we're familiar with are the shopping malls. You know, someplace like Disney Springs really does it very, very well. Uh, and uh, so I think as we look at pedestrian-oriented spaces, uh, we have to look to the examples we can find that work really well uh, in our context. So I think cul-de-sac tempio worked very well. And I, I think you can find other places like that. One of the debates we've had within new urbanism for many years has been um, r- has been really what is appropriate for a lot of commercial uh, Main Street environments in typical American cities and towns. And the reason this is, is because uh, in the 1950s uh, and 60s and into the 70s, There was was a very uh, big movement to pedestrianize uh, a lot of main streets all over the country. I think there were uh, over 300 uh, streets uh, that were pedestrianized, that were what you would describe as the typical American main street. And that was part, it was kind of a fad at the time. Uh, And it was also a reaction to um, what was going on with the increased driving, the increased amount of cars that were going on everywhere and more and more suburbanization that was happening. And it was felt by a lot of planners at the time, if we can just create these really nice pedestrian spaces, these pedestrian malls in cities, then that will be the thing that uh, makes them competitive and keeps them from declining. Um, And unfortunately, it it largely didn't work. Uh, There were, uh, I think, about six or eight of those around the country that survived almost entirely in college towns. Uh, so Boulder, Colorado, Charlottesville, Virginia, I think Burlington, Vermont. Um, there were, there were a handful of those that, that for a variety of reasons were able to survive and, uh, still exist today and are actually really nice spaces. They're really enjoyable places to be. Uh, but most of them, uh, really cratered very quickly and, uh, and, and declined and were complete failures. Uh, there's really no other way to describe it. it the, the experiment largely was a failure. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but clearly one of the reasons was it was caught up in an era when we were all very much enthusiastic about the suburban experiment and the whole notion of moving to the suburbs and everybody owning cars and houses and people were fleeing cities And so a lot of these uh, notions of creating pedestrian uh, only uh, main streets on historic main streets um, really was kind of a last gasp effort to try to keep people in cities in places they didn't really wanna be. And so I think it's probably fair to say that idea, various versions of that idea were just not gonna work in that era at all. We were way too bought in to what was going on with building new uh, suburban communities uh, in all of our metro areas. And it it fed into a larger problem, which um, many people who understand commercial real estate understand, which is you've just got to have enough people with eyes on stores for them to succeed. And so over the course of uh, really starting in the 70s and working its way through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, nearly all of those pedestrianized uh, streets were reversed. Uh, Traffic was put back on them on-street parking in many cases. And in in a lot of places, the stores returned and those downtowns revived themselves. And it sort of uh, it ended the story, so to speak, about uh, car-free spaces or car-free main streets. Um, uh, but that's really unfortunate because that was kind of the wrong lesson. Really, the, the lesson was for commercial areas and other places like that to succeed, they just need to have enough customers, period. Uh, most customers in American cities do arrive by car. And so especially in smaller communities and places that don't have a lot of people living them in them or population density, you need that car traffic to have eyes on the stores. So people know what businesses are there, where they can park, what what they can stop and and purchase, et cetera. Um, but in other communities that did have enough um uh, Sort of a, I guess you could say, a captured population of people on foot. They actually worked, and they worked, and they worked well. And so, uh, as a result, we have been creeping into a new phenomenon in the last decade or two of more and more um, car-free spaces uh, in uh, in cities that are reviving themselves. These typically tend to be pretty small at first. Some of them are like a block long, or maybe they're an alley uh, connecting spaces uh, you know, the, there's a variety of them all over the country. And, and I think there's great hope in that there's, there's great hope that with more interest in urban living, we can see more car free spaces happening. Uh, I would personally love that. I think most people would really enjoy that. If you can judge by their popularity, you can see these working really well, especially when they are populated with, um, uh, entertainment or food and drink uses, they tend to be much more successful. So, There has been this kind of rethinking in the last decade or two of the appropriateness of car-free spaces in American cities, and uh, I hope that continues. I think we're going to see more of it uh, over time. I do just want everybody to understand and caution that we, we did go through an experiment that failed pretty badly, and there's a lot of hangover from that. And there were reasons those places failed. And as we embrace new uh, pedestrian-oriented opportunities, we've got to understand those failures and, and solve for them, uh, so that we don't experience the same level of problem that we had in, in a previous era. And that really kind of goes to a, to next thought, really about uh, this piece, and uh, and this notion we we have this um, we have this history in our country of. Of building new experimental communities uh, that um, embrace maybe what you might call a sort of a utopian uh, approach to city building. And uh, I, th- I actually think that's a great part of American history, this, this notion that we can and we do just go out and build new places, new communities, and we see what we learn from those. And often what happens is uh, we learn important things from those that we apply back in other communities all over the country. Uh, in recent years, uh, examples of that include you know, a lot of the new urbanist uh, traditional neighborhood communities, such as Seaside Florida, which is really uh, the most famous, Celebration Florida, which the Disney Corporation built, where literally millions of people have visited those places and then taken lessons back to their own community and applied them. And so I think there's this great tra- tra- tradition of that, and Mr. Money Mustache alludes to that notion with cul-de-sac tempe and some of the other wishes and desires that the corporation has for future communities. So I actually think that's a great thing. I love it. I think we should keep doing that. I also want us to be mindful of the fact, though, that, you know, 90% or more of the work that is needed and is going to happen are in the thousands and thousands of existing communities uh, or, around the country. Uh, we are all not going to just pick up and live in new utopian uh, communities whatever they might be uh, whether they're um, you know in the desert somewhere or uh, off in the woods somewhere uh, on a beach it doesn't matter um, you know the the vast majority of what will exist physically 50 years from now already exists today uh, and the the interesting work uh, the work that i would encourage everybody to think about is how can what can they learn from some of these new experimental places that they can apply uh, in their own community today? And I think when it comes to this notion of creating places that are more um, car free places that are great for biking, uh, there's a lot of that that is actually uh, easier than we think. Uh, But it just takes uh, a, a, a willingness to try things and do things Uh, And a willingness to also take uh, incremental steps along the way. I'll give you an example. Here in Kansas City, one of our uh, more vibrant um, urban neighborhoods is a neighborhood called the River Market. So it's just north of downtown, uh, obviously near the Missouri River. Uh, Market is in the name because it has our city market in it, which is really a wonderful uh, farmer's market uh, that uh, is, is quite busy throughout all of the spring, summer, and fall months. And, uh, that, uh, that neighborhood has gradually repopulated and developed over the last, uh, say 30 years. And it's becoming a really nice walkable place. And there's more development happening there. It also happens to have our streetcar that runs through it and makes a loop through the area. So, uh, I have a habit often of going down on market Saturdays. Uh, sometimes I'll take the kids and, you know, it's just really kind of fun we'll hop on the streetcar. We go walk around, uh, it's a really enjoyable experience. Uh, it's also become uh, incredibly uh, congested with vehicles uh, on those market Saturdays. Now, obviously that's because people wanna go there. They're coming there from all over the metro area, they're looking for places to park, uh, they're buying things, they're driving off, and, and that's, that's all fine. Um, but it seems like, uh, this would be a a place for us where we could say, uh, we could experiment and say on those Saturdays from, you know, seven in the morning until 5 PM uh, when the market is busiest, we could cordon off certain streets uh, and just have them be pedestrian only and streetcar. Uh, So that way the streetcar can run a little more efficiently and it's not interrupted by car traffic. Uh, and also it just creates a much more extended pedestrian experience throughout the whole uh, River Market neighborhood. And that sort of thing can be done without really changing much of anything physically. It's really just more about the management of public space. Uh, and it's a way for us to to sort of dip a toe in a, a car-free area that if it's successful, if it's done well and it's successful, could gradually expand over time. And once we get to a place where there's uh, enough population uh, of people that live in the area and that really uh, are getting around primarily by walking or riding a bike or taking the streetcar, once we have that point, then you could start to make physical permanent changes to to make more of it car free, and that's that's kind of that's the kind of thing I think about when we talk about you know making changes in existing cities, uh, and and places. So it's really cool when you have a developer like the cul-de-sac Tempe who has a large enough site and they can make those changes and do something fresh on their own. We've certainly got sites like that in our city that I would love to to show them. And I think they could be successful where they're almost uh, sort of these uh, little communities in, in and of themselves. But when we talk about making the larger changes, I think we have to look at uh, incremental opportunities to do so. Uh, this is something that we often talked about in Savannah, Georgia, as well, with the main shopping street there, which is called Broughton Street. And uh, Savannah is uh, a very pedestrian-oriented uh, community and um, has a tremendous um, uh, walking population as you as you are in the downtown area. Uh, a lot of tourists, a lot of visitors from other places that really uh, account for that, plus the residents and, and people who work there. And it seemed like there was an opportunity to look at uh, Broughton Street, uh, at least maybe a portion of it, as potentially potentially being a car-free zone. And there's a lot of discussion about that. Uh, and and I think we we sometimes make this mistake of taking the maximalist approach that in order for this thing to be successful, we have to take the the entire length of certain street and we just close it off permanently and we just go and we do it. Uh, And I would rather say, let's take uh, the incremental approach, find ways. Are there times of day, times of week? Is there a short section that we can try first and see how that goes before doing the maximalist approach? Because these changes do have repercussions on not just lifestyle, but on people's businesses. Uh, And I think we we need to to wait carefully in those things. So Uh, Once again, I love all the experimentation. I love it when we have a developer who takes a vision like that with cul-de-sac tempe and does something. But I also just want everybody to be really careful because it can kind of wade into utopianism pretty quickly. And uh, utopianism is a recipe for failure. Uh, Time and time again, throughout the history of, of city building in just about any era, uh, the truly utopian approaches and ideas almost universally fail, uh, and they fail because it's uh, too much of a change at one time, often, and and we're not learning incrementally from how human beings are actually going to uh, live in a place and adjust to it. So um, that that's the only caution I would have uh, in in any of that. Um, one other small thing that he mentioned, I just want to highlight because I'm also a fan of, he, he talked about how, um, different kinds of bike wing, Mr. Money Mustache is a big bicycling advocate, uh, not just from a financial standpoint, but from a fitness standpoint, which I, I totally agree with. I think it's a, it's a great way to check a lot of boxes. You can, uh, if you can work a, a bike into your daily routine, you're not only going to save money, but you're just going to be healthier uh, as a person. You're going to, you're going to, uh, exercise more and all that's really good. He talked about something that's a pet interest of mine, which is the e-bikes and how e-bikes can, um, really extend, uh, the range of what you consider, uh, your community, uh, or not. And I wholeheartedly agree. I f- purchased my first e-bike a couple of years ago and I was never really, uh, the kind of person in Kansas city where I would ride a bike around a lot on city streets, uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is just the, there's sort of a fear of traffic and heavy traffic. Uh, a lot of our streets are not really in great condition physically, uh, but also there's just, you know, tremendous topography here and, and uh, Kansas city uh, is a very, very hilly uh, city. And so riding a standard bike around, it's, it's a lot of work. And if you're going a couple of miles or three miles, if you've got a meeting uh, you're probably going to be sweaty when you arrive. And that's just not a great way to, to deal with things. And so one of the things that I have really enjoyed about uh, having an e-bike is it just allows me to conquer the hills with no problem. Uh, and uh, I can dramatically extend the distance at which I'd be willing to ride a bike. Uh, so all of that has uh, really transformed my uh, personal relationship with having a bike in the city. I know it's done the same for many other people. It's It's a funny thing that almost anybody I talk to who uh, gets on an e-bike and they ride one for the first time, they buy one like within a couple of months. It's crazy because it's just, it's so addictive. And so I think there is is tremendous ability for e-bikes to act like a force extender for walkable communities in a way, in a way that no other technology uh, has done so far. Uh, And so I'm very, very bullish on that. I think it's a great mention in his part that all of a sudden, uh, going somewhere five, six miles, 10 miles, uh, once you have an e-bike and have figured out how to deal with the weather and everything else, it's really, uh, it's really enjoyable. So the last thing I just want to mention on that piece towards the end of the piece, um, uh, Mr. Money Mustache tries to give some advice about, you know, if this, if this encourages you and interests you, here's some things you can do. One of the things he talks about is, um, volunteering to get on boards and commissions in your own community to help shape the dialogue, uh, and maybe even shape uh, legislation. I, I think that's fine if people really want to do that. Uh, I would tell you my, my actual advice would be, instead of spending your time on boards and commissions, would be to go out and figure out instead how to be a small developer uh, in your community and spend your resources and, and energy on that. Um, I, I wrote a, a blog post several years ago basically uh, hoping that uh, if we could have a goal, uh, that it would be that we create 10,000 new small developers across the country. Uh, So essentially, if we took like the 100 biggest metros, say there's 100 new uh, small developers in in each metro. And that by doing so, we would create an army of people who really uh, um, understood uh, what it takes to succeed uh, in development, who are committed to their communities uh, to, to make them better and who really had an interest in, you know, walkable lifestyles. And if we could do that, that is way more powerful uh, as a change mechanism than just about anything that you're ever going to do on a planning commission uh, or a city council. So, that's not to denigrate, you know, the people who who run and serve on councils, they're obviously very important. Uh, I've never done it myself, so you know, it's easy for me to say uh, to to not do it. But in our society, I would urge people more towards, you know, go do that house hack, go, you know, go find a, a project to do, go find a way to, to be involved, uh, being a, a builder in your own community and, and take that path. So it was a great piece. I'm really glad that he wrote that. Uh, I'd encourage you all to read it. I'll put the link in the, in the show notes. And, uh, uh again, um, uh, I think there's just an awful lot to learn, uh, from, for people who are not in the world of planning, design, and development, and just hearing their thoughts and approaches uh, on these things because it's, it's so valuable to any of us working in the field. Before I jump to the next story, I just want to throw a quick uh, shameless plug in here that if you're enjoying the podcast, please do uh, follow it, like it, share it with others. And if you have the opportunity, leave a, leave a review, reviews on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcasts sites really help in terms of getting the word out about this. So I've really enjoyed taking this uh, project on so far. Um, I'm planning to continue to do it for you know quite some time and have a lot of podcasts lined up here in the next few months. And, and uh, looking forward to sharing uh, more information with you and more great interviews um, with you all. So act two is just a little different. Uh, this is a little shorter thing that I just wanted to share. I guess this one might sound a little bit like a downer, but uh, it's just something that's really been on my mind a lot lately. And I think something was spurred uh, recently by, we got an email from from our uh, school, from uh, the school that our oldest daughter goes to, uh, that is uh, essentially uh, begging parents to... Um, to become bus drivers. Uh, so this was kind of a, uh, it's been an ordeal. Uh, our kids don't ride the bus, uh, right now. They may at some point, I rode the bus when I was a kid to elementary school and, um, uh, junior high school and then high school for a little while. And so I'm familiar with, you know, the whole notion of riding a bus to school, but, uh, it, it's obviously, it's an enormous challenge right now. Anybody in this world, of trying to deal with um, transportation for kids. Uh, bus companies just cannot find enough people uh, to hire. And as a result, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of kids are just falling through the cracks. They're not getting to school on time. They're not getting home at a decent hour. Uh, it's just a, it's, it's a mess. There's really no other way to say it. It's, it it's, it's unlike anything that I think school administrators have had to deal with. Uh, in ever, perhaps. Uh, so it, it's a crazy situation. And, and it just kind of, you know, to me, it's an indicator of something that's going on, you know, in the broader society. Uh, and, and, and I want to relate to you what I think it means for all of us and, and uh, our own communities and people who are really trying to get things done and, and make improvements. But, I think it's very easy to look around and experience whatever, you know, whatever, um, industry you're in, what, what world you're in, that there's just a lot of stuff right now that seems really, really broken. Um, there's a lot of people who seem very broken. Uh, we have been through a tumultuous, uh, time period. Um, and, um, it, it's been stressful. Uh, it has, uh, burned a lot of people out. Uh, it has, uh, you know, I think it's just deeply affected the attitudes that a lot of people have towards work, towards life, towards what's important. And that's good. Those are good things. It's good to reflect on those and and have an attitude, but it's also driven. We've had a lot of people who have uh, been driven or have taken themselves out of the workforce. Um, I mean, we literally have millions of fewer people in the workforce today than we did um, in January 2020. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, there, are, uh, uh, there are millions more people um, uh, who just decided they don't want to work the same or work as much anymore. Uh, there's a lot of the baby boomer g- generation that is retiring in large numbers, uh, which has been predicted for years. Uh, and, uh, but seems to have finally really kicked in starting in 2020. Um, there are a lot more people on disability than there used to be. Uh, I think I read something recently where over the last 10 or 15 years, it's, it's around a million people that have died from drug overdoses, uh, in the United States. And uh, those are people uh, almost entirely who are working age people. That's a lot of people to lose from the workforce uh, that would fill a whole variety of jobs uh, that every industry that I talk to is looking for. You know, it's incredible how across the board now, no matter what the business is, um, I find that people are trying to hire people and can't just can't find them. Uh, I'm experiencing this in. In the job that I have managing uh, Midtown KC now, we manage two community improvement districts, uh, which are clean and safe programs. Uh, Some states call them business improvement districts. In Missouri, they're community improvement districts or CIDs. And uh, we hire uh, hire people to do our clean and safe programs. And it is a struggle, uh, unlike anything that we have ever seen, to attract and retain uh, staff people. And we've done like everybody else has done. We've raised our uh, salaries. We've increased benefits. Uh, we've done all of the typical things at this point that you would um, advise a business to do to try to find and, and keep uh, people. And we find that it's still just, uh, it's it's a revolving door and um, there just aren't as many people out there applying as, um, as we would like to see. And, uh, and I think many of you are probably experiencing the same thing. Uh, I talked to an, an architect friend yesterday who said, even, even in the professional world in architecture, it's the same deal. They have, they have work, uh, they have projects, but they just can't find people, uh, to get it done. And there seems to have been this cascading effect the last few years where there just aren't enough people for the work that's out there. And, um, and that a lot of things just seem really broken and like they're not going to be fixed. So that sounds like a real downer and it is kind of a downer. Uh, it is, it's a struggle. It's a frustration we all deal with, but, but here's, here's what I, I think it means for a lot of us. Um, because I don't think this is, I don't see this changing, uh, anytime soon. Um, the only way it really might change quickly would be is if there was uh, something really bad that would happen, like an economic collapse. You know, if there was an economic collapse where all of a sudden um, businesses just didn't need as many people, then all of a sudden, yeah, the labor force issue goes away. Um, But uh, I I don't think that's going to happen. I certainly hope that's not going to happen, but you know, anything could happen. But if the current trends go along, um, we're going to be dealing with um, a lot of this frustration on trying to get things done um, on the parts of lots and lots of people for, for years to come. And what, what I hear in, in, in what I see from a lot of discussions with people is just, we're going to be in a period of there's going to be just a lot more uh, DIY for all of us, a lot more do it yourself. Uh, we had a, Uh, one of our annual uh, meetings uh, last year uh, of our midtown Kansas city groups to talk about what's on people's minds and their, their own priorities. And every one of the groups basically decided that if something that they want to have done, which they might usually rely on a third party to do that, they're going to have to do it themselves. So neighborhoods are reinstituting neighborhood watch groups, um, which really haven't been in place for probably 30 years. That used to be really common in the, in the 1980s and into the nineties haven't really been common since then. Um, But neighbors may be taking um, security measures a little bit more into their own hands by uh, doing, doing some of those efforts. Uh, We're, we're seeing the same thing with efforts to, to do physical uh, improvements in our neighborhoods that it's just going to have to be, Uh, more of us figuring out how to, how to get it done on our own, that there might just not be a city agency that we can rely on. There might not be a state or federal agency to help us out. There might even not be a private corporation or company who really has the ability to help us or help us affordably. So I think we're in an era where we're going to see a lot more uh, DIY, a lot more of taking local uh, ownership of whatever needs to be done, that there is not some, we're not going to be able to rely on any kind of distant saviors, whether it's private or public sector to solve our issues. It's really going to have to be us. Uh, If we want to do these things, if we, if we want our communities to continue to improve, it's going to be we, uh, we, the people figuring it out. And uh, I think that's, I think that's okay. I think it's a good thing. I think it's going to drive a lot more locally oriented, good ideas, a lot more innovation. Um, but, uh, I think that's just the reality that we're in today. And so, uh, in a certain sense that ties back to the commentary in the first article, which is figure out how to take uh, ownership of your own situation, of your own financial situation, um, figure out how to be involved in, in your community, um, as, as we discussed with Monty Anderson and Bernice Radel recently, figure out how to be your own community-oriented developer. It may not be as hard to do as you think it is. Learn from the others who've taken those steps along the way. But I don't think we're, we're going to suddenly flip a switch and all of a sudden um, there's going to be all these people out there ready to help us uh, who are ready to pitch in and do the work uh, that we would like to have done. So now's a good time to think about how can we be the ones who do that. Uh, we all have our own priorities and stresses, and and in our lives and things that we want to get done. But uh, this is this is not the time period now where I think all of a sudden we can trust that uh, there are these other capable. Uh, agencies, institutions, corporations out there who can really execute for us. Uh, We need to own whatever it is that we want to do. That's all I have for you today. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, follow, and share it with others. I'll be back with you next week with a new episode. And thank you for following the messy city. we feel.